Harvard Divinity School. Another Israeli election, assessing trends of Israeli and Jewish politics, October 25th, 2022. Good afternoon, everyone who is joining us live and those who will be viewing this recording at a later time. I am delighted to welcome all of you to our webinar, Another Israeli Election, Assessing Trends of Israeli and Jewish Politics. We have an incredible array of uh, panelists today, and I'm extremely excited about this important and timely discussion. I'm Diane Moore. I am the Faculty Director of Religion and Public Life at Harvard Divinity School. And this webinar is being sponsored by one of our two main branches of, uh, of programming under Religion and Public Life, the Religion, Conflict and Peace Initiative. And I wanna share a little bit about the foundations of that initiative before I thank my colleagues and turn this over to our moderator, Italia Omer. So our work in Religion, Conflict and Peace Initiative centralizes an analysis of structural injustice, violence and power. And we examine how a more capacious or nuanced understanding of religion can and does yield fresh insights into contemporary challenges and opportunities for just peace building. The primary case study that we're focusing on is Israel-Palestine. And we have an, an array of programs and courses and experiential learning opportunities related to that focus. Our aim is to stretch the scholarly discourse around religion and the practices of peace building, and to examine the decolonial potentialities of art, religion, and identity transformation. And so again, this webinar is an excellent example of our uh, invitation to think about uh, seemingly intractable challenges in fresh ways with a, an incredible array of colleagues who will be leading and, uh, leading and guiding this discussion. Uh, before I introduce our moderator and my colleague, I want to say thank you to the behind the scenes folks who make these webinars possible, Navi Hardin, uh, Rima Tassi, and, um, and Aaron Burroughs uh, on our Religion Public Life staff. And I also want to thank Hilary Rantisi, who is the director of the Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative um, for her conceptualization along with Italia of this important, uh, this important webinar. So Italia Omer is not only a dear friend uh, and colleague, and I think a brilliant, brilliant uh, uh, scholar and public intellectual uh, around many questions related to religion and peace building, but um, especially so related to her work on religion uh, and peace, just peace building in Israel, Palestine. She is the Dermot T.J. Dunphy Professor, visiting professor of religion, violence, and peace building here at the Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative at Harvard Divinity School, and has been our colleague in this work for the last five years. And we couldn't do this work without her. She is also professor of religion, conflict, and peace studies in, at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies and Sociology. She's uh, at Notre Dame. She's and she's co-director of the Contending Modernities blog there. So Italia, I'm gonna turn this over to you and thank our wonderful colleagues, have you introduce them and I look forward to this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Moore uh, for this um, amazingly generous introduction. Uh, so I have the great honor and privilege to introduce our panelists uh, extremely briefly because they simply need no introductions. 
uh, and also uh, we are simply eager to launch right into the conversation. Our speakers today are Amira Haas, who is a celebrated veteran journalist for Haaretz newspaper and an author of, of books capturing the meanings of Israeli sovereignty over Palestinians. Amira is especially renowned for covering Palestinian affairs in the West Bank and Gaza, where she resided for decades. Amira is also a former fellow with us at the Religion, Conflict and Peace Initiative. Our next speaker is Professor Yaakov Yadgar, who is the Director of Middle East Studies at the, um, and also the Stanley Lewis Professor of Israel Studies at Oxford University in the UK. A prolific author, Professor Yadgar's most recent book, Israel's Jewish Identity Crisis, State and Politics in the Middle East, was published uh, by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Last but not least, Professor Shaul Magid is a rabbi and a distinguished fellow in Jewish studies at Dartmouth College. His most recent book, which was published with Princeton University Press in 2021, is titled Meir Kahana, The Public Life and Political Thought of an American Jewish Radical. Our panel today will ask each of these authors, thinkers, and public intellectuals to draw on their scholarly and journalistic or journalistic work in Palestine, Israel, and Jewish political thought and praxis. The intentionality here is not to offer another pre-election commentary in advance of yet another election, uh, though obviously we will offer um, this commentary as well, but really the intentionality here is to think about what this election tells us in terms of a broader discussion of Judaism, Zionism, and modernity, Kahanism, the convergences of forces, uh, Christian Zionists, um, settlers, secular and political forces, and op uh, opportunistic um, uh, uh, agendas as well. So um, really without uh, further ado, um, let's begin. Uh, let's begin with you, Amira. Um, and because you are on the ground, um, can you speak to whether and how the election campaign is felt where you are located in the West Bank? Uh, have you observed changes in the course of, uh, of these repeated um, cycles of elections in terms of um, patterns of Palest dispos uh, Palestinian dispossession and just patterns of violence. Uh, so anything you want to share uh, with us from really from the ground. Uh, thank you, Atalia. And this is for me, good night, uh, good evening. So good evening, uh, good afternoon for everybody. Um, look, let me start with this, uh, a short description. Uh, I live in Elbire and I'm going to vote for a government that decides about the life and fate of all my neighbors here in this building, all the neighbors in the neighborhood, everybody, every Palestinian here in, in, in the West Bank, as in Gaza. The, the, this is the Israeli government decides. In fact, it decides about uh, the life of uh, almost five, five million people living in uh, Gaza and the West Bank, including East Jerusalem but they are not eligible to vote. I'm voting, my neighbor cannot vote. So, uh, and, and this is the main, the main uh, feature of these of this elections, not only this year, not only this time, but for the past, uh, for the past uh, 58 years, uh, uh, 50, 55 years almost. Uh, this is the main feature. Um, 
every Jew in this area, there are, we have so-called neighbors in Betel settlement. They of course are going to vote and um, they, their settlement is built on the land of Elbire and some villages around. But the people who own the land, which means the Palestinians, the, the, uh, the legal owners of the land cannot vote. More than that, uh, most the, the main parties that are going, that we see are going to uh, succeed or to win in the West Bank are the most right-wing parties. So uh, those and some of them who advocate openly uh, expulsion of Palestinians from the West Bank as a solution to the problem or as a punishment if they don't, uh, if they don't, if they are not loyal to Israel. Uh, you know, we can term it, there are many, many, many uh, terminologies that we can use here to describe this reality, uh, but I describe it just in order that for people to understand the basic injust absurdity or absurd, absurd injustice that is at the core and at the base of any Israeli elections. This is, uh, uh, the first. Now, some people say uh, that the, you know, I don't, I cannot call it a, 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 a centrist left-wing uh, government that reigned here for a year. It was a, a right, soft right, yeah, it's not even soft, it's right-wing and, uh, uh, and a little bit with some shades of centrist um, parties. Uh, everything was worse during their reign, when it comes to the policies of colonization and of uh, allowing settlements to uh, exercise their supremacy by unchecked violence against Palestinians. Uh, and also when it comes to the conduct of the army. Uh, I think that in, in about, I don't, I don't remember, in almost 10 years, the, it's the highest number of Palestinians who were killed by the army uh, uh, this year. Uh, some say it was some sort of uh, um, that the Israeli government, this present government, felt the need to to show that it's uh, nationalist enough, and that's why it exercised, uh, it has uh, taken upon those uh, policies or escalation of policies, including today's raid on on Nablus, and uh, and its campaign and. It, Nablus has been under actual actual curfew, internal curfew, uh, for uh, for um, two weeks already. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it is uh, it is really a conscious electoral uh, electoral campaign which makes our minister of security or minister of war and the prime minister to. Um, escalate their tactics. I think it is the escalation is inbuilt in the in the system. Uh, but there are Palestinians who feel that it's on their back, that's on their backs and, and on the at their account, uh, Israeli uh, Israeli centrist parties launch their electoral campaign, hoping to convince people to vote for them because of this. <laughs> but you know, uh, uh, 
why should you vote for, for Lapid or Gantz if you have the original, which is Ben Gvir or, uh, uh, or Netanyahu? So this is the question. Thank you, Amira. Just um, <clears throat> a quick um, point of clarification. Um, an anonymous questioner is asking why you can vote and your neighbor cannot vote. So maybe you want to kind of- sure. I vote because again. I'm in, yes. I vote because I'm an Israeli citizen and my uh, official address is in Jerusalem. Uh, I guess if you compare, you would say that, that there are uh, American journalists, the American journalists of New York Times, for example, when if they live here, they cover the, 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 uh, the area, the Middle East, they would vote, uh, they would vote by, uh, how is it, by envelopes or early voting or by- Absentee ballot. Or absentee ballot, yeah, absentee ballot. I do not need because it's only a distance of 15 kilometers from here to Jerusalem. So I don't need this uh, absentee ballot and I can drive to Jerusalem and, and be there. My neighbors not only cannot vote, they cannot even go to Jerusalem. For, for them, Jerusalem is an abstract. It is a, it is a, 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 a dream, an, an old memory from when they are children, uh, maybe 30 or 25 years ago. So this is also part of this reality that I call the reality of enclaves or Bantustans or, uh, or uh, reservations of pale settlement, no matter what you call it. But it's a policy that um, um, condenses Palestinians into pockets of territory while taking uh, control and taking, uh, 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 and, and taking control and, and using and uh, grabbing uh, all the area around those pockets of territory. Great, thank you. Um, Shaul, um, let's turn to you. And I mean, I also invite you to um, react or reflect on anything that um, Amira uh, just talked about, but also I wanted to ask you um, uh, to, to speak specifically and uh, kind of share with the audience um, the, the, an argument that you recently articulated in um, an opinion piece that you wrote where you argued um, that Itamar Ben-Gvir is a bigger risk um, than Meir Kahana ever was. So um, can you unpack your argument uh, there in this piece in Aaretz and we'll um, also share it with the, um, uh, with the audience um, and, um, and, and kind of contextualize, contextualize your argument um, uh, and whether, um, uh, why do you think that Ben Greer is more dangerous? Uh, and is it the case that somehow Kahanism hijacked uh, good old Israeli democracy. So, um, so anything that um, any kind of insight that you want to offer will, uh, I think, will really enrich the um, the discussion. Also, since um, Amira already mentioned uh, kind of Ben Gvir and how we might or, or the kind of that type of argument that the Ben Gvir is making. So, thank you, thank you. Um, uh, I, I first first thank you for inviting me, and this is it, it, this is an important thing. To be a part of, it's always an occupational hazard to be on a panel talking about elections that haven't happened yet. And I know that there's a lot of um, discussion. So in, in this op-ed piece in the argument that I made, and, and there have been a number of different 
um, pieces about Ben Gavir. In, in some way, I think that uh, this Israeli election cycle kind of reminds me of a TV series where there are kind of there's a returning cast, and then there are these new characters who constantly appear. So if we go back uh, three or four elections, right, the new characters was oh, the new character was Ayman Oda, and everybody was talking about him, and he was kind of the new kid on the block, and there was a lot of optimism, certainly among people in the center and the left, about the potential for a real uh, important and influential and and um, uh, a potentially a game changer in a way. And then that didn't really pan out. And then in the next election, we had Mansour Abbas, who was um, a kind of divide and conquer character who entered in because um, the uh, the government decided that they would be able, they wanted to split the Arabs in the North and the Arabs in the South and ended up, he ended up breaking the glass ceiling and becoming a part of the political system. And that also didn't really pan out. And now we have Ben Gavir. He's the new character. So who is Ben Gavir? Where does he come from? Should we be surprised that he's here? And I think that that one of the interesting things about Ben Gavir and uh, what I call in my book and also in the op-ed neo-Kahanism versus Kahanism, and I can explain what the difference between those two things are in a moment, is that he's more dangerous to Israel because because of the way he is um, quintessentially Israeli. Not only that he's a you know, native Israeli, a Sabra, as they, as they say, or they used to say, but there's something about Ben Gavir that is very, very uh, cognizant of the system. He knows how to work the system. Uh, and I think the distinction that I made between Ben Gavir and Kahana is that Kahana, first of all, was an outsider. He was an, he was an interloper. I mean, even when he was in Israel, he was always considered to be an American. And, and Kahana was really a revolutionary, and a revolutionary in the sense that he was willing to take down everything with him. He was really willing to burn the house down for his ideals. Ben Gavir is not really a revolutionary. He's somebody that comes from the inside, and he really wants to change society from the inside. And the reason that he's more dangerous uh, is because Israel is already, Israel, the Israeli electorate is already more sympathetic to those ideas. So that Ben Gavir doesn't have to be as radical as Kahana was, because the society is already more radical than it was. Remember in 1986 and 1987, the Knesset, both on the right and the left, by the way, voted to implement the racism law that made Kahana's party illegal. And so when people ask, and people have asked me, well, why don't they use that same racism law to oust Ben Gvir and his religious Zionism party? And the answer is simple, because it wouldn't pass in the Knesset anymore. In other words, that the entire system has moved so far to the right that Ben Gvir is able to do the same work that Kahana did without being Mayor Kahana. That is, without being the revolutionary, without being the real radical who's bucking the system. Ben Gvir isn't really bucking the system. Ben Gvir is a piece of the system. and. Um, you can see this just in the way that Netanyahu was willing to partner with Ben Gvir and basically in an article in Times of Israel Today said that, you know, he's not going to bow down to America if America opposes, uh, you know, a government with Ben Gvir. So I think he poses a real threat because it, as I said in the in, in the op-ed, it's like the frog in the in the boiler in the in the pot of water. It's slowly, slowly, slowly getting getting hotter and hotter until the point that the frog just, you know, is, is burnt to death. And in a certain way, I think Ben Gavir is a sign. Now, one of the things that I think is important to note is that in the latest polls in Arabs that I just checked this morning, religious Zionism is slated to get about 12 or 13 seats. Now, 
if it get, you know, I think we're standing between a disaster and a catastrophe. If if Ben Gvir should get 13 seats or his party should get 13 seats and he becomes a minister in the government, that's somewhat catastrophic. If Ben Gvir gets six seats, it's still a disaster. And I think a lot of people will say, oh, well, you see, he didn't get 13 seats. He only got six seats. So maybe it's really there's nothing really to look at here. But I think that the issue is whether he gets 13 seats, whether he gets six seats. I think that Ben Gavir is a sign that the Israeli electorate has changed, that the political climate has changed. And whether that's permanent or not permanent, no one knows. But there is a new norm, as Tomer Persico wrote in his essay on Ben Gavir and Aretz, he's Kahana for the whole family. He's normalized and regularized a certain kind of, of ethnocentric chauvinism that is no longer surprising to many Israelis. And I think that people that are surprised that Ben Gvir exists really haven't been paying attention. I mean, we can talk a little bit later about American Jews and American Zionists and how they'll react to it. But I think that whether Ben Gvir is as successful as predicted or whether he's less successful than predicted, the issue is not Ben Gvir. The issue is the Israeli electorate and what's actually gone, what, what has happened since 1987 when Kahana was removed from the Knesset or whether the decision was upheld by the Supreme Court. And, and 2022. I think that's the real, the real, the real danger is that it's already here, not that it's on its way. Thank you. Uh, I... will, yeah, Amira, go ahead. Yeah, so in, a, in one sentence, we should say that he's dangerous more than, than Kahana was is because he represents uh, so many Israelis. So the danger is not in, in Bengville, but the danger is in a great part of the Israeli society, a great, great part of the Israeli society. And one thing, I, uh, yes, and I want to mention one thing if I can. I think one of the more interesting things that people aren't paying attention to in the Ben Gvir story is that his base is not only made up of, of, of right-wing settlers, his base is also increasingly made up of young Haredim. Now, that's actually new because I think that the Gen Z Haredim have really abandoned some of the traditional Haredi parties basically as irrelevant. It's a kind of a boomer phenomenon within the Haredi world. And basically a lot of these young Haredim are saying, no, Ben Gvir is, ben Gvir is, is just saying something new. He's interesting. He's not just getting money for yeshivas and giving us a patur from the army. He's actually, he's actually articulating a particular kind of ideology that we identify with. And part of that is that they, the young, a lot of young Haredim are becoming very politicized and very nationalized. And you know, if you take a Haredi mindset and you politicize it, or you 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 make it into a political register, you have Khanism on some level, right? The idea that the Arabs living in the settlements are no different than the Cossacks living in the Pale of Settlement. The way in which the politicization of young Haredim are, is strengthening. The, the far right base is something that I think, you know, in a certain way, you know, people like Ben Gurion may uh, have kind of regretted the, um, the aspiration to make the Haredim a real part of the political culture, because they're bringing with them a particular kind of attitude and, and, and they're great in number. And I think they're very powerful. And I think they have a lot to do with Ben Gvir's popularity. 
Thank you. Um, Yaakov, let's um, turn uh, to you for this initial round um, of um, questions. So in your recent book, you uh, examine um, what you call Israel's Jewish identity crisis. Can you please explain your thesis and discuss how your analysis of Jewish modernity and Israel's Jewish identity crisis can help us understand um, the political and rhetorical shifts away from uh, kind of the, con uh, the construct of quote-unquote Jewish democracy. Um, and uh, perhaps if you can also uh, speak specifically about the significance of the Jewish nation state law, what it is, um, the law that passed in 2018, and how it connects to, um, to the degree that it connects to your analysis um, in, the, in the book. So in a sense, now with you, we are stepping a bit outside of kind of the moment uh, of yeah. the elections. So first of all, thank you. Thank you for asking me a question that would be, you know, three book launches uh, in proper answer at the same time. And allow me, just before starting to answer you, to actually touch upon this uh, point that was repeated both by uh, Shaul and Amira, um, and kind of, uh, you know, in, in, in the name of balancing the discussion, I want to highlight that the legitimation of Kahanism or the Kahana style rhetoric and um, well, some, sometimes even pure racism doesn't start with Ben Gvir and maybe Netanyahu, uh, you know, putting his uh, um, hand around Ben Gvir's uh, shoulder. I think it starts uh, slightly earlier if you consider uh, the legitimation given to Lieberman. Uh, Lieberman, who was advocating loyalty tests to Palestinian citizens of Israel, Lieberman was advocating um, transfer, basically with the land, but uh, a sense of transfer of uh, uh, Palestinian citizens of uh, Israel, uh, has been endorsed by the Israeli left because of what we would call the left, I'm sorry, uh, and I uh, fully accept Amira's uh, hesitation about this. Uh, has, it, has been endorsed by those who would do anything uh, to have uh, Netanyahu not be prime minister um, without really, I think, taking into consideration the, this effect of legitimating uh, this kind of discourse. That's just, I'm sorry, I, a, a reaction I wanted to, uh, to offer. Now, as to your question, I, I think that's one of the biggest issues that lie at the root of the Israeli polity that many people simply do not address because they assume the answer is given. Although the contention over this answer, this question, what does it mean for Israel to be a Jewish state or what does it mean to be the nation state of the Jewish people or what does it mean for Israel to be a, you know, a, a national home for the Jews to go all the way back to the Balfour Declaration is, uh, is an unsolved question. It is at the root of not just Israeli nation statehood but at the root of Zionism itself. Uh, maybe captured most you know, clearly in, in the Zionist uh, uh, claim to Jewish history, the Zionist claim to Judaism itself, while at the same time rebelling against this history, rebelling against this uh, uh, um, Judaism with, uh, you know, call it religion or otherwise, uh, and claiming and, and arguing that Zionism is now the moment of politicizing and modernizing Jewish identity. So uh, Zionism never solved this uh, tension and um, it brought to life this uh, dual competing readings of, uh, of the very meaning of the national project. One meaning, and very crudely, obviously, this is just a caricature of a more much more complicated um, ideological debate, but 
One dominant answer, let's title it with Herzl, with Theodor Herzl, would say that Israel is not anything beyond a European nation state for the Jews. So following the European post-enlightenment, uh, post-emancipation notion of Jewish identity as an ethnic or even racial kind of identity, nationalizing it and then endowing it with what is the collective right of these people, self-determination uh, in a nation state of the Jews. In which case the only prerequisite would be for Israel to be, uh, when you think about uh, uh, you know, practical matters of politics, to have a Jewish majority. Now, this is not a simple prerequisite. This is necessarily a demographic, uh, uh, a, a demographic stress-inducing exercise that uh, renders uh, one's uh, supposed ethnic or even uh, you know, racial identity the basis of the polity. So if to think about you know, uh, uh, the question, uh, the first question that was addressed to Amira, one way of answering this question is that, yeah, because she's considered by the state a Jew, no matter what uh, Amira's position regarding uh, Jewish identity and Jewish history might be. The other, the competing uh, answer to this question, what would it mean for you know, this project to be a national project of the, of a Jewish national project is the one that Ahad Am, Asher Ginsburg was giving, which says, you know, it, it has to be a project of corresponding with Jewish tradition in one way or another. Um, in, no, in no way would it be traditionally Jewish, what they would call religious project, but it would have some sense of correspondence and Hadam was very happy to say, yeah, I'm a chauvinist, I'm a Jewish chauvinist. Uh, if, you, if you think that uh, uh, an outright preference of Jewish matters is uh, something that this polity to be should, uh, should adopt. Uh, in, my, in my understanding, this is uh, this contention, this uh, uh, tension between these two uh, readings uh, characterizes the Israeli reality throughout. And in this regard, the nation state law, which passed in 2018 after more than a decade of debate, more than 14 years after it was first uh, initiated by this outright uh, conservative thinking Zionist uh, uh, think tank, um, it was meant to anchor, this was the use, uh, to reaffirm Israel's identity as the nation state of the Jewish people in reaction to a, a sense of threat by those who promoted it to this law. If you ask me, what is it actually about? What, how do we understand it? I think the best way to understand the nation state law is to see it as um, another point in a long developing uh, narrative of uh, reassertion of nationalism. Uh, we can connect this 2018 law to the 2016 moment here in uh, the UK with Brexit and the 2016 moment here in, in the US with, uh, with Trump and a long list of reassertion of what we would call right-wing or uh, neo-fascist, uh, I mean, it continues now with Italy. Uh, nationalism raises its, hand, its head again, reasserting itself against all these uh, uh, predictions that it would be giving way to, I don't know, uh, post-Cold War liberalism, kumbaya. And uh, the nation state law is trying to say that, to, to reassert nationalism while using Jewish as its uh, 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 well, subject. The problem is that it is confused between the Jewish state and the state for the Jews. So it starts with an initiative that was clearly aimed to reassert that Israel can discriminate in favor collectively 
of the Jewish nation, and it ends with an attempt to maybe instill some Jewish meaning into this polity, which was uh, very, how would I say, uh, handicapped. And it's, um, it's an odd mixture where both supporters and detractors say this is a highly fundamental but redundant law. We, we really need it, but we don't really need it, uh, and not in this way. Uh, and I think the, the cycles, the, the election cycles that we've been seeing, so this is what, the fifth gen, uh, election cycle in, uh, in two years, um, are dancing around this question. Um, one of the ways of understanding Ben Gvir is that he is, or you know, religious Zionism, they are reasserting this nationalist premises um, without shame, I would say, uh, what Israel is called polit political correctness for some reason. Um, and uh, as Amira said, it's very difficult for other parties who are nationalists, but trying to paint nationalism more, I would say, uh, uh, palatably, um, have, to, have to argue with someone who just says it outright. Thank you. Uh, maybe at this point, um, uh, that's an opportunity for the panelists to respond uh, to one another, uh, um, to whatever thread. I mean, there are quite a few threads on the table. So, uh, yeah, Shul, go ahead. Yeah, I think, uh, thank you, Yako. I, I, I think you're right. I think it's a hard pill to swallow. Um, I don't think that there's a tremendous difference between Ben Gavir and Netanyahu on some level. And again, go, going back to Lieberman, of course, it goes back much further. It goes back to the revisionists. It goes back to Jabotinsky. It goes back to everything I've read through. And it even goes, it goes to things that Ben Gurion himself said. So I think it's, it's deeply embedded in the Zionist project, a kind of nationalism, a kind of chauvinistic nationalism. I don't think that Zionism was ever really a liberal project. It was an illiberal project that had certain liberal positions. And when those liberal positions very often get pushed forward, whether it's with Brit Shalom early on or Peace Now in the 70s, right? It, they very, very quickly become marginalized because as you said correctly, the nationalist project is deeply nationalist on some level. And, 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 and Ben Gavir may be a scary iteration, but he certainly is not unprecedented. I mean, you can take Kahana and put Kahana aside. He's certainly not unprecedented. I mean, this, this kind of attitude has been going on throughout the history of the state and even before the state. So um, I think Israelis, especially center or center left, left Israelis, it's, it, it's, it's very hard to confront the possibility and I say this openly, pro provocatively, but also seriously, that the problem is Zionism, that that's the problem, right? And, and that Ben Gvir is not, is not uh, uh, some kind of a Frankenstein of Zionism, that he is a particular moment and a particular iteration of something that is a project that needs to be um, reassessed. And I'm not saying that as an anti-Israel position, I think separating Zionism from Israel might be an interesting way to begin to address the kinds of issues that you raise. So thank you. I, I want to just, I'm sorry, Amira, if you have a point, I am sorry, I'm jumping into this. Uh, I want to stress something which I'm sure is also in the mind, uh, on, the, on the mind of some of the, uh, of the audience. Um, there is uh, the danger of understanding us as singling out Zionism or singling, uh, or misunderstanding me as singling out uh, Zionism. In no way am I meaning to say that there's something unique about Zionism in this regard. This is the nationalist project. And in this regard, Israel is a model of a nation state, like some of the uh, proponents of uh, Zionist nationalism now go around saying in the US. Um, 
it, it, it is the only nation state that claims sovereignty in the name of the Jewish people, and it's the only nation state that has to somehow account for its Jewishness because, uh, you know, if any, for the fact that uh, most of its citizens do demand some sense of reassertion of its Jewish identity. But uh, the set of problems in play are not uniquely Israeli, nor they are Zionist. Uh, the, the biggest question in this regard is whether this uh, distinction between Zionism and, and or you know, Zionist nationalism or nationalism in the Israeli nation state is possible. Uh, in, some, uh, in some readings, we would be now understanding as denying Israel right to exist as a Jewish state, which being both illegal in Israel and potentially also represents anti-Semitic in other contexts, which not, neither of us uh, mean to, to say. Uh, this is where the debate becomes really complicated because uh, questioning nationalism necessarily brings about questioning Zionism, which necessarily brings about questioning Zionism's appropriation of Judaism, which then brings us to a more complicated uh, field. Yeah, thank you. This is really uh, important. It's really, and uh, I'll turn to you, Amira, in, in, a, in a second. I just want to um, amplify uh, two things that I heard. Uh, one is about how um, a Ben Gvir uh, is entirely consistent uh, with kind of the grammar of, of uh, Zionism, of secular Zionism. Uh, and, um, and, and another point that was uh, just articulated and re-articulated uh, is about um, this is something about the, the project, the modern project of the nation state of nationalism. Um, and I just want to put on the, on the table, and Amira is um, a perfect interlocutor for this because uh, you have this analysis that um, while we have an analysis of nationalism foregrounded, there is an also kind of a deeper analysis of settler colonialism that is also operative. Uh, so um, perhaps this is something, Amira, I mean, you, you feel free to respond to whatever uh, you want to, but uh, maybe you can bring in the kind of the, uh, the settler colonial lens. Uh, and also, um, if you can thread into your, um, uh, your reflection, um, one comment or question, I guess, comment, I don't know how to call it, uh, from the audience, uh, uh, basically asserting that uh, this is this was supposed to be a panel on the Israeli elections. Why are we talking about the occupation? Uh, so maybe um, we can start there and go from there. Yeah, of course, you stole from me my remark to, uh, to, to Yaakov uh, that it's not just a national project like any other national uh, project, but it's, uh, it's a settler colonial entity and a settler colonial uh, process that, have, that we have been experiencing for the past 100 years. But here I would like to, to remind us of another uh, historical fact that uh, was omitted. And I, I feel as an unhappy or, or um, a, 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 an Israeli citizen who has not chosen to be an Israeli citizen, uh, or a Jew born in Israel, uh, there is another fact that I would like to, to mention, is that Zionism did not attract, was not, a, was not an attractive project for many years and it be, uh, to, to most of the Jews in the diaspora, because most of the Jews in the diaspora prefer to stay in the diaspora and to um, find other ways to combat anti-Semitism and persecution and uh, economical distress. Uh, and we all know that. So we all know that Zionism started to attract Jews um, when anti-Semitism or discrimination started to be genocidal. 
And when the, uh, most of the uh, Western world did not accept the Jews, starting with 1924. So while we're talking about, ideolo about ideologies uh, uh, and the kind of, of deterministic uh, dynamism that national ide ideology, any national ideology has, I feel the need to, to stress that there were some, some historical uh, processes and, 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 and uh, uh, more than events, a series of events that made this project succeed and uh, started or, or reignited the, the dynamism uh, that we see today, uh, whose culmination is Bengville. At the same time, there are other processes. When the world was bipolar, the Palestinians had some kind of uh, ideological back, uh, uh, back of, of, based on values of liberation. Uh, absurdly enough, it was the Soviet Union, the existence of the Soviet bloc. Uh, so at that time, the fight for liberation and independence was not termed as terrorism as it is today so easily uh, by most of the world. Uh, and this is also, and when, there were, when it was a bipolar world, the internal uh, or the, 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 the inbuilt uh, dynamism, uh, Kahanist dynamism, it was possible to check it. Even in, in Israel, Likud did not, the, the party of Begin, Begin would not, or Shamir, they would not, they, they did not agree to talk with, 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 with Kahana. So there is a process that I, I would like to say that we, I as leftist, of course, I don't want to think that everything, every deterioration is inbuilt and inevitable and that we are doomed to, to deterioration. Otherwise, what, why would we act? Why would we, why would we uh, uh, participate in protests and more than that, and in combats, if we think that everything is deterministic? Um, which doesn't mean that I'm not terribly, terribly pessimistic and, 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 and frustrated, of course, because I see this, uh, I see that Israel's, levels of impunity has reached uh, unprecedented levels and the world tolerates Israel's uh, 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 policies, uh, settler colonial violent military policies against the Palestinians in a, in a, in a, in a scandalous way. Uh, this is also, I mean, 20, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, still there was some hope that European states would, uh, would stand up against Israeli expansionist uh, policies, uh, and they haven't. So which brings me to, to the question about why do we talk about occupation when we promise to talk about elections? Um, you know, it'll be like talking about elections in, uh, I don't know, in England without talking about poverty in England or about the problem of, uh, of uh, uh, the, the enormous economical gap between the rich and the, and the, and the working people. Or like talking about elections in, uh, in Iran without talking about oppression against uh, women in Iran. <laughs> the occupation is part of Israeli life and the occupation which is part of Israeli uh, uh, settler colonial uh, 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 essence, 
is 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 on the agenda. Only that people, most of the Israeli population calls it uh, our rights, our security, our uh, 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 ancestral uh, ancestral uh, existence, etc. But what we see here is not just a military occupation that has lasted for for more than fifty years, but it is um, uh, it is. It is maybe what's happening is maybe the, the 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 most vital proof that Israel is a settler colonial entity at 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 the basis because it aims all the time at marginalizing Palestinians to a point of being only individuals and not a people uh, and when they are uh, uh, and when it's it's um, when it's uh, not enough for the Israeli uh, tops then uh, they are in danger of banishment or in danger of expulsion. So it is very much connected. And so and every election is about, as I said in the beginning, is not only about the life of Jews in Israel and Palestinians who are Israeli citizens, and actually about Jews all over the world who can come any, any moment and become citizens in a matter of a day or two. Uh, it's more than anything else, it's connected to the Palestinians who live in the occupied territory of 67, cannot vote, but their life is determined by these elections. Can I add one thing, Amira? Just very, very quickly, just on nomenclature. It's, it's interesting you use the language of liberation regarding the Palestinians. From 1967, at least through 74, founding Vusha Munim, um, the language that was used to talk about the consequences of 67, meaning the, the acquisition of these territories, was not occupation, but liberation. Because that was, the that was the language that many Israelis used. It was the liberation of territories, right? So the, it's a liberation of territories and then becomes an occupation of people. And I think now, and this, this is going to swing back to the, that question that the person asked, it's moving from liberation or the language of liberation to occupation to de facto annexation. So there is a kind of transition where the question of occupation is in some way becoming less relevant only because it's becoming less temporal, it's becoming something, it's becoming something permanent. So the reason that we're talking about occupation and the truth is talking about Ben Gavir is not only talking about occupation, he's only also talking about the Arabs in Israel is that that's where Israeli democracy hangs in the balance, right? So if we're talking about an election in a democratic society, we're talking about that thing which actually under is undermining or could could undermine the state as a democratic state. So of course, of course, you can't. That's the albatross, right? I don't think we can get beyond that. The question is really not occupation. The question is democracy, and that's why let, I think. We talk about so it. let me sharpen. I mean. From day one after the, the military occupation of the or acquisition, military acquisition of uh, Gaza and the West Bank, including Jerusalem, uh, it, it, it rendered Israel not a, 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 as a no democracy uh, because the people who, uh, 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 because it includes so many people who don't have citizen, citizen rights at all and no, no right to vote. Uh, and yet they are, their life is so much shaped by Israel. And this not to mention, of course, all the Palestinians who were expelled in 48 and, and, uh, 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 and of course are not part of the, uh, 
were not were not could not be citizens. But even if we if we think any, about Israel uh, before sixty seven as a lame democracy or whatever something aspiring democracy, uh, this changed immediately in sixty seven. So the 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 the, the world's the world's admiration of Israel as the only democracy in the in the Middle East is from the start a, 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 from the start the, the, the world was is blinded and has been blinded uh, because this is not true because we always had a population it's a growing Palestinian population that is not allowed to vote. I mean, it's not allowed to even uh, decide whether uh, which which uh, uh, economy to develop. So they are not allowed uh, to vote either. Yeah, and maybe uh, uh, this will be a good place to um, to speak explicitly about the uh, kind of the erosion of the so. Uh, so-called green line. This is also in reference to one of the questions that um, um, a question that was posted. So, how does the kind of the the green line, as both um, supposedly a kind of a geopolitical line, but also uh, a normative line in the sense that it separates like what is within within the green line is Israel proper, and there we can talk about you know, quote unquote democracy, um, and then outside of the of the green line. So how how would you bring kind of the green line um, uh, from all of your perspective into the conversation? Yeah, Shaul, go ahead. I think I think one of the interesting um, one of the interesting uh, moments of the erasure of the green line was two years ago with the what was known as Ben and Jerry Gate, when when they when Ben and Jerry decided not to sell ice cream to settlements. Uh, but was selling ice cream all over the all over Israel. Uh, there was a, an outcry among among Jews and many liberal Zionists as well. That there was something there was something fundamentally wrong with Ben and Jerry making that decision. In a certain sense, that the the underlying assumption is that there's no real green line. In other words, uh, you know, um, I don't know. Chavat Yair, oh no, I'm trying to think of a settlement, whatever, something like Beit El and Tel Aviv are the same thing. There's no difference. So if you're not going to sell ice cream in Tel Aviv, in Beit El, it's as if you're not selling, selling ice cream in Tel Aviv, which is basically saying there is no green line, right? So in a sense that the, the opposition to Ben and Jerry's decision, even though you may not agree with it, is basically, basically assuming that Beit El and Tel Aviv are the same thing. And if you say that Beit El and Tel Aviv are the same thing, there's no green line. And I think that that's been true for a long time, except the Ben and Jerry's, you know, episode just brought that to the surface. And in a certain sense, a lot of, you know, liberal Zionists who would say, yes, I'm against the occupation, meaning there is a green line, were then opposed to the Ben and Jerry's decision, which was assuming there actually wasn't a green line. Yeah, and that also coincided with um, various human rights organizations uh, like B'Tselem, the Israeli B'Tselem and uh, Human Rights Watch um, uh, using the, 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 the category of apartheid uh, to describe the entire geopolitical space. Um, of course, it manifests in different ways, depending on, on where you are in 48 or 67. Uh, but this category has become kind of um, uh, de uh, deployed to, um, to, to explain the situation, of course, with an understanding that Palestinians have named it, I uh, used that language um, a long time ago to describe their realities. Uh, but um, yeah, so um, uh, Amira, do you want to jump in or Yaakov? Yeah, I want to. Um, 
Look, the green line exists and doesn't exist at the same time in many forms. So I, I wouldn't be too theoretical about this, me. Um, uh, where it exists really uh, uh, sharply so is when it comes to citizens' rights, citizenship. Because the Palestinians who are, uh, uh, were born in 48 Palestine, in, which means in what's called Israeli proper, uh, and are born now are Israeli citizens. And uh, even if some of them live in, uh, in, uh, in the West Bank, they remain Israeli citizens. And they have slightly more, their position as the citizens of the place and, 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 peop and, and, and residents of the place and uh, uh, are secured. Uh, while Jerusalem, Jerusalemites are subject to a different set of uh, laws that actually um, they are regarded as people who emigrated to the country, the absurd of it, that emigrated to the country and if they leave it, if they leave Jerusalem, uh, even if they live in the, in, 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 in the West Bank, but mostly if they live abroad, they might, they lose their uh, status of residency. So this is another group, but it is because they are beyond the green line. And then there are Palestinians who are in the West Bank and Gaza, uh, whose, con whose situation was similar to that of Jerusalemites, but changed after Oslo, because after Oslo, Israel no more can revoke their status of residency, as it did to tens of thousands, if not more, since 67 till 94. So in that sense, when it comes to citizenship, uh, 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 the green line exists, and, 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 and it, it really does. When it comes to territory, uh, it's, 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 it has never existed actually for, for the Jews because the Jews could come freely to the West Bank and settle in the West Bank and get land and, and, and move freely from one place to another. While Palestinians could not go and buy uh, and build settlements uh, or, 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 or rebuild their villages uh, in 48. So there are many ways that, that it's being played. It's not only in, uh, uh, and from the start and from 67 or 1970, the green line did not exist for the Jews, but existed for the Palestinians. Um, so let's not make it only theoretical. Thank you so much. Yeah, Yaakov, go ahead. Uh, um, I want to follow on uh, Shaul's uh, point. Maybe uh, Amira, forgive me for going more theoretical than the, the practicalities of this. And uh, maybe make a meta comment and then a, a less meta comment, more political, more, you know, election related comment. The meta comment, they are both, uh, you know, emanating from uh, Shaul's point about this, uh, you know, Ben and Jerry Gate and the whole uh, atmosphere around it. I think there's no way of understanding Israeli politics without accounting for the sense of potential uh, undermining of the legitimacy of the state. I think the one thing that dominates the discussion uh, on Israel and specifically the Israeli uh, political culture's reaction to perceived threats or to perceived critiques or, or you know, outright critiques of, uh, of this or that policy is that at the end of every logical uh, uh, reasoning, national logical reasoning, it is, it's not necessarily you know, pure reasoning, uh, there's the threat of the state being delegitimized, the state being no longer, a second Holocaust is a possibility. And this is, I don't wanna make this a, a caricature. I think this is an essential part of the Israeli 
mindset that the state is not just any other organization, it's a guarantor of the very existence of the Jewish people, questioning the legitimacy of the, the, legitimacy of the state, which the Ben and Jerry gate somehow is understood to be, somehow ends up with this uh, uh, fundamental anxiety. And I think it's also important to note that uh, we should be able to talk without necessarily meaning and, and this should not exist or this should not be. Uh, so critiquing uh, the political reality, it, it's interesting, you know, it, it, uh, you can have many discussions on American politics and uh, mention, you know, horrible elements from uh, the American history and from the American uh, uh, presence. And no one would suggest that you may be arguing that all Americans should go into the into the ocean. Well, it is, well, it is something that stands at the back of many people's mind. And I think that's, a, that, that's a, an essential meta point uh, to make. More specifically about the election, what comes up also from uh, Shaul's point is that uh, I guess the very small elephant in the room, it's not a big elephant, the very small elephant is the, is the Israeli Zionist left. And the very notion of uh, liberal Zionism. So um, numerically, it is a diminished group. Um, and I'm, you know, I wouldn't suggest that we fall into the rhetoric of uh, of Netanyahu of blaming anyone who's not a Netanyahu supporter as a leftist. So if we do abide by some by some sense of um, um, leftist politics as having to do with the Palestinians, the, uh, there's very very little by way of uh, representation for this in the in the electoral map right now. And more so on, the, on an ideological, ideational level, it's, it's very clear that uh, the, this shift to the right, as uh, Shahul has uh, described it earlier, uh, is also, in an, in, you know, looked at from the other side, is the diminishing of the liberal Zionist uh, option. And I think it can be seen as pushing the liberal national, again, I, I don't want to talk only about Israel. I don't think this is a necessarily Israeli solely Israeli uh, uh, problem. The whole idea of liberal nationalism is really being pushed to its um, uh, logical limits. Um, to give just one, you know, maybe the, the, the one point that really uh, attracts my mind, if you ask the proverbial liberal Zionists from Tel Aviv, okay, they're all Tel Aviv somehow, uh, secular Israeli, what does it mean for Israel to be a Jewish state? They would say one and one thing only. It's only a state of the Jews. It's only a state that has a Jewish majority. And they celebrate this as a liberal idea because this, uh, this means that Judaism should not have any presence in the public sphere, that, uh, um, that you know, civil rights can be happily granted to the minorities and so forth. But they never pay attention to the fact that this is based on a racial or ethnic or whatever you want to call it, demographic notion of Jewishness, which they become fully subscribing to, even if they didn't mean to in the first place. It's about who you count as Jew and who you don't count as Jew, which is the most fundamental national logic, us as majority and them as minority, and they will always be a threat to us. And this is, again, this is a liberal Zionist uh, uh, mindset. The, the, you know, the conservative right-wing uh, uh, religious uh, Zionist camp is speaking more and more forcefully in terms of um, theology political theology, which becomes theology. Uh, the Temple Mount becomes a uh, Beta Mikdash. The temple itself becomes a, a locus of political contestation. So they're very much Zionist, but they're very much also committed to a sense of Judaism, which they would you know, uh, uh, adhere to. 
Um, so they can be they can have their own very vibrant debate, I guess. Uh, but it doesn't uh, account for the fact that the liberal Zionist answer is kind of exhausted. Thank you. Actually, um, maybe I, I can uh, introduce now a question from the, the audience that is relevant to what you just um, talked about, Yaakov. Um, the question is from um, Benjamin Mordechai Ben Baruch. Um, and he writes, I, I want to ask a question about Jewish identity, which I think is an underlying issue in the Israeli election. Is Judaism being redefined as Jewish Israelism? Uh, that is, is Judaism becoming a political religious identity that demands support of right-wing Zionism and the right-wing policies of the Israeli government. So perhaps another opportunity to get into that issue from um, a different angle. Uh, so I'm sorry, allow me to jump into this. Also, first of all, to say, yeah, to give a shout out. Yes, Joyce, Joyce, lovely to see you. Yes, Joyce Del Shame has written a book about this. It's called Israel is a Jewish Problem. And uh, in which, you know, she gives a very clear sense of the, of the paradox of Jewish identity in Israel. Uh, thank you, Joyce. Uh, regarding Benjamin's question, I think, yeah, you're touching a point uh, uh, which is very sensitive in, and you know, you're touching the point right on. Uh, one way of appreciating it is to see how people uh, like Netanyahu, like Ben Gvir, like, well, it's, only, it's not only Ben Gvir, it's uh, the party that is now called the uh, Religious Zionist Party, but uh, uh, people who advocate this kind of uh, uh, um, identification between Israeliness and not just Jewishness, but Judaism per se, or I would say between Zionism or Jewish nationalism and, and, uh, and Judaism, uh, they regard anyone who does not subscribe to their political ideology as not Jewish or is not Jewish enough. So it's one's Jewishness that is questioned if one's political ideology does not fit that certain kind of uh, interpretation of uh, Jewish nationalism. I think I just want to throw one for one thing. I think that there's, I mean, again, this is not, it, well, it is election related that it, it really is not religious Zionism per se that 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 is the kind of subject of the question uh, and really about the identity. It's really a particular development of religious Zionism that comes out of the Cookian school and and not even the school of Abraham Isaac Cook, the, the, the chief rabbi of Palestine who dies in 1935, but it's really the religious, it's a move that's made of the religious Zionism of his sons for Yehuda Cook and, and that move, which is a very, very important one, is the transference of the holiness of the land to the holiness of the state. That once the state itself becomes the subject of religious devotion, once it's seen that going to the army is a mitzvah, like language like that, which is really it's for you who the cooks move. Once you have that, you have the sanctification of the state, not the sanctification of the land, not the sanctification of the Jewish people. You have the sanctification of a secular modern national body, which then gets transformed into, into a religious entity. Once that gets locked in, I think you can see a lot of things that, that, that follow from that, where, where um, the Jewish national project, as, as, as Yaakov called it correctly, the Jewish national project becomes um, a holy enterprise. And, and once you're there, it's very, very hard to, to, to step back from that point. And that, that, that leads to very problematic consequences politically, as well as uh, questions as well as, as well as existentially or on questions of identity. Yeah. Um, oh, Yaakov, go ahead and then I'll turn to Amira. 
interject quickly on this. Uh, Shaul, you're right, but it doesn't start with uh, Itzhak Cohen Cook or with his son. It starts with nationalism, political theology per se. The sacredness, the sanctity of the state is not, uh, is not a matter of religious nationalism. It's a matter of nationalism. And uh, the, if you want the best expression of the sacredness of the state, you shouldn't look for religious Zionists, you should look for Ben-Gurion. What we call statism or mlachtiyut is the sancti, you know, the sanctification of the state as the government tour of uh, of existence. Obviously, it takes a different view when it's not uh, when it corresponds with the Bible differently. It, it corresponds with the Bible, not with the siddur. I would say this is what Ben Gurion is doing. Um, but uh, I, I just want to stress is that this political theological uh, reality is 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 much wider than religious Zionism. Religious Zionism, in effect, is more interesting because they start off with this distinction, with the separation. So the first, the Mizrahi rabbis at the beginning, they say, no, 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 we're Zionists on one one hand, we're Orthodox on the other. This is, uh, I mean, Zionism is a project of saving Jews. Uh, and, and our religion is something uh, you know, somewhat uh, separate. And this is what religious Zionism in Israel ultimately becomes. It becomes, yeah, fully fledged national movement. Um, which still sees itself as religious. Yeah, um, thank you so much for bringing kind of that analysis of political theology um, uh, to the foreground. Uh, so um, perhaps um, we can turn to Amira now, and if you can, you know, react to whatever is um, on the table, but also maybe speak concretely on the patterns of um, collusion uh, on the ground between the uh, Israeli occupation forces um, and the settlers, the religious um, uh, settlers. Um, as a laywoman or, or point of very Jewish, do you hear me? Oops. Uh, I'm sorry, I had some problems with my... Do you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Um, as somewhat as an observer, uh, I've seen this, the, 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 the spread of very the form of very chauvinistic Judaism uh, uh, and the deliberate choice of the most chauvinistic aspects in in Jewish traditions, I've seen this developing and worsening over the years, and I think it's the mechanism. It's it's probably not the only thing, but it's it's what I see is the ideological mechanism which comes to justify the uh, enormous privileges that, uh, or, the, or the system of privileges to Jews. Uh, I think this is basically in most of, the, most of the places, that's how racism is developing in order to justify uh, also sexism, in order to justify and to maintain and to eternalize the regime privileges of, of I mean, in a form of, of chauvinist and racist Judaism um, be, became stronger and stronger with the with the uh, uh, Oslo period with the Oslo with the Oslo Accords uh, because actually the Oslo Accords in a, in a in a in a twisted way legalized the settlements by agreeing to postpone the discussion and the negotiation over the settlements, it in a way legitimized them also by the Palestinian leadership and 
And the Palestinian leadership had to, to, to agree, to consent to, the, uh, um, to Israel's policies of securing the settlements so that the interim agreement won't be harmed, which actually made the, the, the final status, don't I think that it ever was in the mind of Israelis, but theoretically the, inter, the, the final status of uh, the settlement between Palestinians and Israel uh, became redundant, not needed. Because if everything is fine in the interim period, why do we need a final, a final status? Um, so at that time, with Oslo, the possibilities of Israelis to settle in the West Bank became, many, the, the, became more and more appealing. That's why we have such a, a jump in the number of, of Israelis living in the settlements, in the colonies. Uh, and then you have to protect, then you feel that your, your life is being endangered by international law, by Palestinians' demands, by, by uh, uh, international community, etc. So you develop or you enhance this, 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 this mechanism, ideological mechanisms that justify your very privileged and actually illegal presence here. Uh, so I see this process happening, and that's where Palestine, that's where settlers' violence comes in. There has always been settlers' violence from the almost from the beginning of the uh, uh, sixty-seven occupation, uh, but it was uh, what's what's very pe pe uh, peculiar and 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 specific to the current uh, to the current form of violence uh, that actually started in the mid nineties is a violence that aims at uh, that aims directly at grabbing more land, more land than, than, than the uh, political echelons, political military echelons intended at that moment. And this is, this is the, and especially so it, it was from the 95, it was uh, 96, 97, there was violence that meant to, to, uh, to allow or to, to enable Israeli settlers uh, uh, build all kinds of outposts that even according to Israeli, Israeli very, very lenient laws are against the law. And then to allow those outposts to take over more and more land. For many years, it was uh, land for, that they wanted to transfer to agricultural purposes. Then they realized because agricultural purposes get, you can have more land more land without Palestinians than if you just build houses. But then they discovered it's not enough and you need a lot of human, uh, a, a lot of uh, 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 human power in order to work in those, uh, in those agricultural lands. And then it came in the, mostly in the last 10 years, uh, the phenomenon of uh, shepherds uh, outposts that can one family and a five or 10, uh, a, a, High school dropouts who have a lot of uh, uh, frustrated frustrated hormones in them go and take control over and, and grab tens of thousands of dunams uh, uh, each. Uh, the, according to 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 uh, one of the re best researchers we have on the settlement policy, Israeli colonization policy, Dwal Etkes, uh, just a couple. Cu some some dozens of of uh, settlement of outposts have managed in a in a time of ten years to get to to take 
take control over 200,000 200, uh, dunams and more by violence. So it's mostly violence intimidating Palestinian farmers and Palestinian shepherds, while the Israeli authorities not only stand aside and don't do anything like the police or the, the army, but actually co collaborate with them because this is just another tool of colonization. The settlers' violence, the uh, 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 apparently, but not truly, uh, individual settlers' violence is one of the tools that Israel has in order to get more and more, and in order to proceed with the colonization of the area. And that, in, in many respects, go back historically and how um, agricultural uh, settlement participated in, um, you know, security discourse and, and gaining more and more land, uh, contiguous land, uh, going yeah, back to before, 100 years. Yeah, but before 48, they had to, to buy land and they didn't succeed in getting as much land as they wished to. Uh, the war enabled them to, of course, to get the, to 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 get hold of of the land, the enormous land that uh, belonged to Palestinians uh, who who were expelled or were not, were not allowed to return, and then to 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 uh, to take land to uh, expropriate land of the Palestinians who did remain in 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 Israel, forty eight Israel. Uh, so there is there are, there are, uh, the the aim is similar. But the 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 methods change uh, 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 slightly. But the violence of today, indeed, is is uh, is in such a peak, which is uh, it even reached. You know, they, they the settlers now also attack soldiers. So only when they attack soldiers do the Israeli uh, uh, chief of staff uh, uh, expresses it, his shock. But this is this is such hypocrisy. Because your own soldiers stand aside and stand, and on the contrary, they assist the Israeli, the Jewish attackers, uh, when when Palestinians and left-wing activists are being attacked. Uh, so they assist the attackers, uh, not only stand stand aside. And this is a long process. I mean, I've been following so many cases of of uh, such attacks that were very well documented. Uh, uh, with footage, with 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 knowledge exactly from which outpost the attackers came, but then the police police shuts down the file and says no, uh, uh, the attackers were not found, or it's being closed shut down because they say it's not uh, of interest to the public, or because they they accept the settlers' uh, uh, narrative that he he felt uh, danger to his life. And this is about the person who murdered the Palestinian on his own land. So the the I mean, there is not much room here for interpretation. It's so clear. It's not. Uh, uh, it's it's the pattern is so so uh, uh, entrenched and so has been going on for so many years that there is not no much room for interpretation here. Yeah, um, thank you. Um, uh, can you also maybe say a few words on um, where you see on the ground the um, the, the influence of um, uh, Christian Zionists, especially from the United States, on the ground in the um, the colonies in the settlements? We know that uh, uh, I forgot where I think somewhere 
indeed in one of those areas that are most uh, have most suffered from settlers violence in Burin area uh, a group of, of uh, uh, Christian Zionists have bought even bought land but I see it mostly um, in the self-confidence uh, this spiritual self spiritual uh, a comradeship, or if I can con contaminate this word, um, uh, this this uh, affinity between uh, between the, the the Jewish nationalists and the the and the Christian Zionists, and the feeling of uh, the world is with us, or the history is with us that the settlers have. Yeah, because of course, um, uh, many people who populated the, uh, the previous American administration were deeply, um, yeah, yeah. are deeply entrenched in this kind of Christian Zionist uh, worldview. And so, and, and we know that many, many right-wing settler right-wing organizations get uh, support and are financed by some of those groups too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just want to also during the during the uh, during the Corona crisis, when people were not allowed to enter, I mean, foreigners were not allowed to enter the country. But uh, uh, there was one group of Christian Zionists who, which was exempted and could enter the country. So yeah. it's, a, it's a, a, just a, a, a side testimony to how uh, to how dear they are for the Israeli system, the Israeli uh, uh, regime. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to make sure that we um, at least alluded to um, to to how uh, they relate to the realities on the ground uh, in really um, um, uh, important ways that really sh um, contribute to the realities. So, um, oh, yeah, Yaakov, go ahead. Yeah, no, I just wanted uh, to to ask uh, Shaul to approach this issue of American influence uh, on Israeli politics because. Uh, there's an interesting, I mean, uh, what happens to the Jewish American influence when this Christian... I was going to ask this question. <laughs> I'm just yeah, well, okay. I'll, I'll, um, this, this, this is a fascinating question for a number of reasons. Um, first of all, we all remember, I don't know whether it was Danny Danone or it was somebody else that said on the hot mic that, that Israel should just give up on American Jews and just, just court Christian Zionists because American Jews are liberal and they're against Israel anyway. Um, but this, a lot of us that follow this in America are, have always been wondering about the inflection point. Where is the red line? Where is the red line for American Jews or, Amer or liberal Zionists in America where um, if it was crossed, their support for Israel would significantly diminish. And I remember in 2018 with the nation state law, there was all this talk, oh, well, maybe this is the red line where American liberal Zionists would no longer be able to support Israel. But they were able to overcome that by saying, well, there's nothing really new here and it doesn't really have any consequences. And now people are asking, well, what if Ben Gvir becomes a minister in the government, in the Netanyahu government? Would that be a red line where American Jews or American liberal Zionists, I should say, because a lot of American Jews that support Ben Gvir, but American liberal Zionists would say, Adkan, this is enough. We can't go further. I, I, I tend to think that there is no red line. 
Um, I once asked a modern Orthodox, moderate Zionist, he defined himself as a moderate Zionist, would there be a red line? Would, could Israel do something that would, uh, that would result in retracting your support? And he thought for about 30 seconds and then said to me, no. And it was actually quite honest because I think it was a true answer. I think that liberal American Zionists are in a very, very difficult defensive position. On the one hand, they're committed to liberal values, certainly in America. And on the other hand, they're committed Zionists because of the Zionization of American Jewry over the last 50 years. And I think Israel is pushing very, very hard against, you know, trying to draw a wedge in a sense between those two things. I think at the end of the day, if most liberal Zionists had to choose between liberalism, liberalism and Zionism, I think they're going to choose Zionism. And I think they're going to choose a support for Israel. So I think if Ben Gvir becomes a minister in the government, I think there'll be all kinds of hand wringing and all kinds of op-eds and all kinds of stuff on social media. At the end of the day, that will remain. And by the way, going to something that Amira said about the American administration, I think it's the same with the American administration. They may talk about being concerned about Ben Gvir. They may talk about this, about that. They're not going to do anything. And I think Netanyahu knows that. And that was the one thing that Netanyahu has been right about 100% of the time. He can always call America's bluff and he will always win. I mean, there was an article published today in, the, in, in uh, Times of Israel where Netanyahu said, I'm not going to bow down to American pressure on the Ben Gvir issue. But there really will be no pressure. There will be a couple of tepid comments about this is not helpful, this is not productive, we're concerned about this. I don't think Biden is any different than any other president. I, I don't think that Biden is any different than Pompeo on this issue. I think that American, the American administration will not do any, will not force Israel to do anything that it doesn't want to do. I don't care if it's Chuck Schumer or Mitch McConnell, it's the same thing. And I think that I, and I think Israel knows that. I think that Netanyahu knows that, and I think American Jews are in a very similar place. Ultimately, they will sacrifice their liberalism for their support of Israel. Yakub, do you want to um, well, react? I guess my point, uh, with the danger of belaboring it a little bit more, uh, one more last time, I guess, uh, my point would be that, uh, by way of anecdote, you know, I'm teaching my uh, my students, you know, main, main theme about Israel, obviously a main theme is, uh, is you know, how to judge Israeli uh, democracy. Is it a democracy? Is it something else? And one of the questions that uh, the students rightfully ask is like, First of all, whose interest is it for Israel to be a democracy, and why? Uh, and why ask the question in the first place? Is it democracy, right? And I think it's interesting to 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 take this uh, this question uh, into consideration. If we follow the idea that the nation state's reason to exist, its raison d'être, is to express the nation's right to self-determination then democracy is only uh, an additional element of it. It's not a fundamental element of it. Um, so we can reach at, uh, you know, in uh, Viktor Orban-like notions of an illiberal democracy, which is not a democracy, but it's a, you know, it's a popular sovereignty. That, that, that was, I think it was meaning to say. Uh, so I guess in this regard, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, Shaul obviously is uh, pointing uh, the finger at the, at, at the core issue. Uh, if the support to Israel is a matter of one's uh, national commitments, then Israel's uh, um, failure to adhere to democratic principles or to liberal democratic principles should not be detrimental. 
Similarly, I don't think anyone would say that uh, the United States is no longer the United States when it has a president who is willing to subvert the elections, if you manage to do that. There would be enough people to say, yes, yes, that's the, you know, the due process. Um, you know, Kahana, Kahana said a long time ago that every country should be a democracy except Israel. Because, the, because for him, Zionism wasn't a project of normalization. It was the creation of an abnormal state. That was, that was basically the way he understood Zionism. It was the abnormality of statehood, where Israel was the exception. And I think that, although that's an extreme position, I think more and more people on the Israeli right are asking exactly the same questions as your students, Yaakov. They're saying, why democracy? What's so holy about democracy? Right? We, I mean, democracy is fine as long as we're able to maintain control, control of the narrative and have control of the resources. But if somehow we, we wouldn't have control of the narrative and the resources, they'd be willing to abandon democracy because, as you say, right, or as your students say, that the national project is about the self-determination of the Jews. And it simply doesn't really matter. So I think, I think we're moving in that direction in the Israelis. I think American Jews have a much harder time absorbing that because for many American Jews, democ democracy is the raison d'etre of a nation state. But that's their experience, right? Go ahead. Sorry, uh, no, I just want to uh, maybe interject uh, a common question from uh, Sidney Nestle. Uh, isn't Ben Gvir precisely a move away from the sanctity of the state towards the sanctity of the Jewish people and, and the land? So if you want to kind of reflect on this, but I also saw Amira wanted to, to jump in. No, I wanted to ask Shaoli, what about what we hear about the younger generation of the American community uh, that is detached more and more from Israel? Do you think that it'll change once they grow older? That's a good question, right? It, it, what, once they have money. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, right. Well, no, that's a good question. Look, it's always the question of the young when young radicals become bourgeois, when they have children and need you know, school tuition. I think, I think it's a very good question. And um, I, I, I hope not, but, but I do think that, that there's a younger generation of American Jews who, who were born after 1967, so all they know is Israel as an occupying force, and who have been radicalized through progressive politics in America, Black Lives Matter, and a number of other things. And they're translating that to Israel, and they're, they're simply not buying the narrative. Uh, and you know, they are being more marginalized by the, Israel, by the American Jewish Center and the American Jewish Conversation, organizations like If Not Now and JPP and Trua, organizations that are non-Zionist organizations that are Zionist. And I, I, time will tell whether that will happen. But I think that there's a fear uh, in the, uh, among American Jew, the American Jewish community, certainly the, the, the powers that be, that they're losing control of a younger generation on this question. And, and frankly, I mean, I teach Israel-Palestine every year at Dartmouth, and my students are, you know, by and large, Jews, non-Jews, white, black, Hispanic, Asians, they're not convinced. They're not convinced of the narrative that they hear from the Israeli news services. And they're much more skeptical and much more critical. And um, it's, a, it's a very good question. I, I don't know what the answer will be, but that it's causing a lot of anxiety among the American Jewish you know, power structure about what to do with these people who are coming out being anti-Zionist or non-Zionist or, or, or what have you. And uh, we'll see in a decade or two what happens to them. Well, also, we don't know what's going to happen in Israel. So uh, I think for, for me, the more interesting question is really 
like where what is the future if there is a future of liberal zionism in america whether it's going to choose liberalism or zionism because on some level that's the inflection point that's what ben gvir might actually you know bring about because american jews don't understand ben gvir they don't really understand him they understood kahana but they don't understand ben gvir he's much too israeli for them his discourse is israeli his 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 mindset is israeli i mean kahana was an american thinker who tried to transpose American racial categories into Israel, and it kind of didn't work in a way, and Israel rejected him. But, but Ben Gvir is a really a neo-Kahanist in that way, is that he's not playing with American categories. It's a very, it's a very Sabra-like discourse that American Jews are having a very hard time getting their minds around. But what's striking for me within the Jewish community in America is not that they are liberal Zionists, which might be a, now it is a contradiction like saying a democratic Jewish state. Uh, so it's it's uh, inbuilt contradiction, uh, but that they still embrace Israeli narrative about being uh, in danger and attacked and the victim in the whole story. Uh, this is what strikes me as, 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 as you know, and 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 being ready to 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 uh, to give up on the natural what I would say Jewish repulsion from injustice like the all the uh, what we knew from a uh, hundred years ago about repulsion from from uh, injustice or 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 uh, uh, or the censors the the old censors that we had as Jews to 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 feel uh, injustice. Yeah, I think I think it's the weaponization of anti-Semitism as a tool that's trying to keep support of Israel alive, which is really what the IHRA document was about. It wasn't really. I mean, there's not a. There, we, I don't think we have a problem with defining anti-Semitism. We know what anti-Semitism is. The problem is defining anti-Semitism in relationship to critique of Israel, and I think that's why those documents were written. And I was a signatory on the Jerusalem document. It was the same kind of pushback on that. So yes, what's what's happening is that. Anti-Zionism anti equals anti-Semitism, which is something Jonathan Greenblatt, the president of the ADL, said publicly. That is the equation that's keeping everybody within the orbit. And that's basically, in a certain sense, where, where it comes down. Anti-Zionism anti on the left is more dangerous than anti-Zionism on the right because, I'm sorry, anti-Semitism on the left is more dangerous anti-Semitism on the right because anti-Zionism anti on the left is anti-Semitic. Um, yeah, which is, yeah, uh, it, it, it really, it really illuminates the, uh, the, the importance of looking at the, 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 the context, the actual place, Palestine-Israel, uh, within this, this uh, kind of deeper discursive um, um, uh, uh, framework that it is, um, you know, kind of like it, you, you highlight that global dimensions, the global and international dimensions of that, that really influence lives um, uh, on the ground, Amira's neighbors uh, in the West Bank uh, in really uh, profound ways. Um, so we reached the, uh, the time um, to end the conversation. Obviously it generated a lot of more questions, uh, which is I think a good thing. Thank you so much for making the time um, to be a part of this. Um, yeah, thank you, Amira, Shaul, and Yaakov. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great to meet you all. Sponsor Religion, Conflict, and Peace Initiative. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.